Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Michael Bell and Leonard Cady, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's good to be here. Mark, thank you for having us. It's great to have you both here. This is going to be a very interesting conversation. This is a topic that comes up all the time, contract documents. And so we're going to dive into that for a little bit um, about two specific documents that the AIA has recently released um, that you both are very familiar with. And uh, we're going to talk about that. But before we that, I want to introduce who you are uh, and learn a little bit more about who you are as an architect and where you came from. Michael Bell is an architect based in New Orleans and is the founder of Bell Architecture. His firm specializes in full-service residential design with a particular emphasis on custom homes. At Tulane, Michael received his Master of Architecture in 1984 and a Juris Doctor in 1990. He is licensed to practice both architecture and law. And before founding his firm, Michael practiced law for three years, primarily in defense of architects, and in 2007, Michael was asked to serve as president of AIA New Orleans uh, during that organization's restructuring to serve a more energized post-Katrina architectural profession. In 2009, Michael began service on AIA Documents Committee, uh, which is tasked with writing the AIA contract documents that we all know and many of us are using for our practice. Uh, And he served on that um, 
committee as as committee chairman in 2017 and 2018. So very familiar with AIA contract documents, how they are created, why they're created. Um, and then Leonard Cady is a principal of Leonard Cady Architecture and Design in, Art, uh, in New York. Uh, his firm's work includes residential, commercial, and retail projects in New York, Connecticut, nationally, and abroad in London, Paris, and Prague. Uh, Leonard currently serves as chair of the Residential Contract Documents Task Group, which recently published AIA A110 and B110, which is the custom residential uh, documents that AIA now offers, which is what we're going to talk about today. And as a member of the Interiors Document Task Group, Leonard helped create and publish the suite of Interiors documents. And both Michael and Leonard are active in AIA National and both speak regularly on this topic of contract documents. So there are few people in this world who are more qualified to talk about this topic that we're going to talk about today with residential architecture and custom homes and and uh, and contract documents. So we're going to have that conversation in a little bit. But before we that before we do that, Michael and Leonard, I want to know more about you. I'm curious as an architect how you became an architect, who inspired you to become an architect. Um, and share your origin story. How did you get from that point to where you are today? Michael, let's start with you. Thank you, Mark. Yes, when I was, uh, when I was small, my, about six years old, my father um, had an architect design and build a custom home. And I was, of course, fascinated watching that process and, and watching the drawings develop, the design develop. And uh, as I got older, I gravitated in that direction, had a, a creative streak as well. And uh, also had the, um, to put a personality or a face on it, I also had uh, the opportunity when I was in high school to, to speak with Buster Curtis. And Buster Curtis is, uh, was of Curtis and Davis, which was later absorbed by Dim Jim. But Buster Curtis is the design architect for the Superdome in New Orleans, which um, is, you know, has proven its longevity in its longevity to be a uh, one of the big modernist icons i think in the u.s but he had designed a well three thousand square foot home for my grandparents and i grew up visiting that home and uh you know appreciating it's very much mid-century type of architecture and appreciating what architects do through through that and through uh, watching my father go through the design process of building his own home. And so I was on that path and went to Tulane and uh, went to uh, worked in Dallas, Texas for four years. And in the mid 80s, um, things weren't going so well in, uh, in the economy. And uh, like a lot of folks and in, in bad times, I went back to school and I went to law school and I thought that uh, construction litigation would be a, a really lucrative career. And it indeed was, but after spending much of, my, much of my life designing and building things and constructing things, it was hard to be in a profession that uh, is in some ways destructive. And uh, after about three years, I found my way back to architecture. I walked out the, uh, the door of the, the law firm and uh, started my own little firm doing additions and renovations and Stayed with, uh, you know, I did a little bit of everything early on, but stayed with custom residential. And, uh, and that at some point 20 years ago or so, I said, this is all I'm going to do. And uh, I stayed with it. But um, I'll add that, uh, you know, as, as Mark said, I'm a, uh, being an attorney, um, 
you know, I've just been stayed fascinated with, uh, with uh, you know, how design and construction interrelate with law and contracts. And they found after Katrina, we were in a lot of contact with AI National, and they found me down there as an architect and lawyer, and said you'd be kind of person that might enjoy the documents committee. And so I did, as uh, as you said, I, I joined the uh, documents committee, and uh, it's uh, I think we all know a little, we all are familiar with AI contract documents, but over my 13 years there, it was sort of uh, my mission to uh, I really wanted to uh, get our AI documents to address residential as much as they could, and, and we'll get into that I think, but um, that was. I'm, I rolled off, we had our last meeting this past week and I rolled off the documents committee after 13 years. And uh, wow. the subject of what we're going to talk about today leaves me with the best feeling because um, I, my last thing I worked on uh, with Leonard was to create documents that will serve me for the rest of my career as a custom residential architect. Yeah, very, very needed. So thank you. Thank you for your service to the profession for sure, both of you. All right, thank you, Michael. Um, Leonard, what's your story? How did you get started in this world of architecture? Well, at an early age, I was exposed to art in my home, uh, travel to cities like Paris, where I saw new and old buildings. Um, and that made a great impression on me. Um, I also was moved by more pastoral settings in which architecture featured prominently in dramatic landscapes. Seeing buildings like Habitat by architect Safdie in Montreal and Buckminster Fuller's Dome in Montreal and other buildings with strong architectural image um, inspired me and made me excited about architecture. Um, at the same time, I was also curious about how mechanical and biological things worked. Um, I had plastic pull-apart models of hearts, and kidneys and stomach, uh, which I marveled at um, when I received an electronic device like a tape recorder, a camera, or a movie camera. The first thing I did was uh, reach for a screwdriver and took them apart and then <laughs> assembled them uh, before actually using them. Um, cameras were of greatest interest to me um, and became my eye on the world. Um, I realized I could capture images of what I saw with artistic compositions of horizons and objects and light and shadow. And so photography became my touchstone um, and has followed me throughout my love of art and architecture and has been my quick means of capturing my mind's eye. Um, if only we had iPhones back then, it would have been maybe a little easier. <laughs> Um, I discovered that I was really moved by great art and architecture, either in person or in books. Um, I loved materials, assembly of things, especially mechanical. Uh, the wood and metal shop in middle school introduced me to industrial objects and their assemblies. Um, and uh, later in a summer job in an electrical contracting company, I learned to weld and assemble heavy industrial materials. I didn't realize I was on a path to architecture. A guidance counselor once told me that if I did not particularly enjoy math, um, architecture <laughs> was not an option. Um, those those pesky uh, uh, guidance counselors have have been defeating architectural profession with myths for for many many years. 
isn't it true? Um, I hear that all the time. That that specific sentence that you just said comes up very often in in origin stories. Um, as a backpacker, um, I set an ambitious agenda of museums and buildings I wanted to visit. Uh, summer allowed me for long days to view buildings and walk cities with purpose. Um, that time in my life consolidated my deep passion for art and buildings, uh, which has never waned. I worked in architecture firms most summers in between school um, and had some really eye-opening experiences. One firm I worked at had original Mies van der Rohe drawings um, because they were the architects of record for the TD bank buildings. Wow, um, that must have been a treat to, to be able to see them. It, it was amazing. The rigor in those drawings was amazing. Um, I aspired to that standard of drawing from that moment on. Um, having grown up with Barcelona chairs at home, I remember how perfect the steel joinery was and how curious I was about uh, what it took to achieve that level of aesthetic perfection. Um, that kind of aesthetic and technical rigor is something that I'm always conscious of. I studied Renaissance architecture in Italy um, in a study abroad architecture program. And after having received a professional degree in architecture from University of Toronto, I worked for a large commercial firm that at its height created expressive steel architecture and tensile-like structures at an impressive scale. I worked on just about every type of commercial building, um, including office buildings, hospitals, retail, shopping malls, um, and hotels. Um, I next went to the GSD at Harvard for a Master's of Architecture, and then um, uh, moved to New York to work at KPF. Um, I loved KPF's high standard of design and construction. I then moved to Europe and began my entrepreneurial phase, phase of architecture. I moved to Paris to work with a Japanese construction company on a hotel golf course resort outside of Paris. Following that, I uh, prospected in Prague and was hired by Western companies to create office space in um, historical buildings. I had to quickly understand how to engage companies in a contractual form. My first client was a law firm, uh, White & Case. I took an AIA contract and modified it for use there. Um, the partners signed it without any questions or changes, and I was on my way. I was able to work within their law offices and learned a lot about contracts and law by osmosis. Um, I hung out at night with lawyers. I learned about how social compacts in countries like Japan bind relationships, or how in Europe countries uh, have court systems that take too long to settle disputes. And lastly, I learned how American contracts are among the lengthiest and most often used models for business engagement. Fast forward through many projects with lots of construction administration in New York and other locations brings us to the AIA documents. I have now been on the AIA contract documents committee for five years and chair the residential task group that created a new family of residential documents with small firms in mind. I'm very excited about the benefits entrepreneurial small firms will have from the B110 custom residential document and the A110. Yeah, these documents are very exciting for me. 
I'm a residential architect as well. Um, AIA contracts have always sort of gotten in my way as a residential architect. Um, we used them on and off for some projects early on. I lost several projects because of the AIA contract documents early on um, because they scared clients away. And, uh, and it inspired me to develop my own contract. So I hired a, an attorney. We developed our own contract um, and, and didn't use AIA contracts for a long time. And so when I heard that um, the AIA contract documents were being developed specifically for the work that I do, uh, custom residential architecture, I was really excited about it as well. Um, I want to talk about them and how they work. We, we're listening, you know, people who are listening right now, all small, not all, but the vast majority of our listeners are small firms. The vast majority of those uh, small firms are residential architects. So you're talking to the people who these documents specifically are going to affect uh, professionally. And so I want to dive into them uh, so they understand how they are, how they work, why why they were developed. Um, I have I have a question before we dive into the documents themselves about how AIA contract documents are created, the committees that you were on or, or are on. Um, how are those f- committees formed, and how do the documents actually happen? Right, these documents were created essentially from scratch. Um, how does that process work? I'll uh, be glad to talk about that. Um, the there is a committee of about thirty to thirty-five member member architects who are really work on content with some staff attorneys, some some uh, about five attorneys at AIA, as well as there's some outside legal counsel who are in the world of construction litigation and see these documents, um, you know how they're used in the real world. And all of those 30 to 35, uh, typically it fluctuates, but uh, those AIA members, some of them are also in the world of some work with owners, some work with contractors. Um, of course, a lot are with architectural firms. So we try to get a, a blend of the, of, of the experiences uh, to inform the content from not just architecture firms, but from uh, you know, owners and contractors as well. And we also have insurance uh, counsel um, you know, who, who bring, uh, bring to the table some of, some of their experiences. And uh, one of the reasons we involve more than just architects is because these, they really need to be fair and balanced to be the, an industry standard, you know, to right. sign risk where they belong, the party that can best um, to b- best take on that risk, um, you know, if we're not fair and and balanced, uh, we're not going to sell too many. Which you know, that's the uh, pecuniary way to look at it. But it's also we want to be of service to the industry and have good quality uh, documents um, that all the different parties um, use. We w- w- want to use we, um, th- but the committee meets. The committee is a hardworking committee. Um, I've, I've used to, I keep all my hours like any, any good business minded architect should. And so I went back and when I, uh, when I became chair, I was sort of trying to figure out well, what, how many hours am I in for and, and, uh, started looking a little bit harder at it at that point. But I estimated even when I wasn't chair, I was putting in about 250 hours a year into this volunteer work. Yeah. And believe me, I get get a lot out of it too. It's, it's, uh, it just so informs our practice 
and uh, keeps us out of trouble. And I think it's important that everybody have uh, contracts be a integral part of it. But but uh, so it's a lot of work, and the the committees meet. The committee meets uh, four times a year. Two usually in DC at AI headquarters. Two times a year at other locations to sort of make it a little easier for our members on the West Coast. Or, and uh, and then in between, there are a lot of conference calls. We go over a lot of content. Documents tend to be built on other documents that came mm-hmm. before, but they're constantly. Uh, growing and expanding and adapting to the new way we practice and, you know, changing practice like sustainability and digital um, are, are things that have been woven into the documents recently. And so they're living and breathing and constantly being updated. And um, we, um, you know, we, we really, those of us who are into this really enjoy working on it and uh, trying to keep them relevant. Yeah. So, so the documents, when you started with these specific documents, I'm assuming they were, they were, you know, a, a lot of it was built on the small projects suite or, or the interior suite is it is. And then yeah, I'd like it, to give you a little background on yeah. it and rolling into that is that, uh, you know, we, we kind of like you said, you didn't weren't using AIA. Right. Uh, documents and and we've heard from residential practitioners. We'd heard that you know oh they're they're too big and they're too long. And many years ago, AIA just because there was such a clamoring for shorter documents, created these documents um, that were the B one hundred five, which changed its name in twenty seventeen. The B one hundred four. Those were the owner architect agreements. There's also owner contractor agreements, but they were really uh, there because people wanted short, but you know, those of us who are looking at these documents, um, you know, there, there's so much that's missing, you know, yeah. you're yeah. not covering the, the what ifs and the, um, the unanticipated things that can happen in a project. And so we, you know, we started with a, a survey, you know, that's how you start trying to figure out what your audience needs. And, and we sent out a survey to SPP, SFX and CRAN, you know, these are the knowledge groups that yeah. uh, most of your listeners will know. And uh, we got about 400 responses. And, you know, we asked questions like, you know, what types of agreements do you use? Uh, you know, what modifications do you make to AIA uh, language? What are you using if you're not using AIA contracts? And uh, just um, took all that information. And um, essentially the, the conclusion was, you know, these, these, these B101, the B101 is sort of the flagship owner architect agreement and the A101-201 is the owner contractor. And especially the owner architect agreement was, we thought was very well serving uh, the, put it this way, if somebody's paying attention, they would think, yes, I should be using this. But there were some edits and that, you know, that could be made and um, for the owner, for these agreements that would make them a little more, make them more fine tuned to, uh, to custom residential. And so we started off thinking that we have the, all these resources on AIA. One of them is, is a, one type of resource are guides where you talk, we talk about how you can edit. So for example, if you want a limitation of liability provision, there's a guide that'll tell you how to do that. We thought, well, we just need a guide to tell them how to, how they should edit the B101 for custom residential, the flagship owner architect agreement. But as we got into it, we really shifted gears and just said, you know, 
we can really write this and not it, but, and put the onus on us to edit it rather than asking practitioners who are busy people, as we all know, to edit it themselves. And so we put together a, a task group and um, there's a total of five documents that, that came out of this, this task group and, and Leonard and I and uh, Marika Snyder is in Memphis, Tennessee and Susan Van Bell of uh, AIA worked on these for a couple of years. And, um, and we came up with these documents and we can, we can get into, you know, sort of how they differ from the, from the B101. But the, the important point is, is that they're a little shorter than the B101, but they're not much shorter. And I, I can't emphasize enough that, you know, you want, there's, we all kind of at, at the, at the minimum, a owner architect agreement is architect's going to do this, the owner's going to pay them that. And from there, there's so much more you can add on and to, and to not go a little lengthy is to do so at one's own risk. And, you know, that would, our business advice is to don't, don't, uh, you know, don't fly by the seat of the pants and, you know, wonder, well, what happens when the owner tries to, you know, for example, assign your contract to somebody else, you know, is that in your little letter, your letter agreement that you've developed, uh, you know, um, what ha happens when the owner says, you know, I think I'm going to contract this out myself. All of a sudden you're, you know, wait, I'm, I'm supposed to be doing CA with a general contractor. And, you know, there's obviously, you know, who the burden falls on when the owner tries to contract it out themselves. So there are all these eventualities that really need to be in there. And that, that creates some length. And we've, we've tried to edit out things that, that are not pertinent to residential and then maybe and customize a few things that are. Let's take a break to thank our sponsors for their support of this episode. As architecture demand increases toward pre-pandemic levels and beyond, how are you and your architecture firm keeping up? RCAT is here to help. RCAT.com offers several free tools to help architecture and design firms like yours get work done faster. Use RCAT's powerful search engine to find the right products for your projects and download BIM, CAD, and specifications right there on the same page without needing to pay or register. It's free. RCAT.com also offers product videos, catalogs, green reports, product certification information, outline and short form specification generation, and so much more. Visit RCAT.com today. RCAT.com is your one-stop solution to help increase your productivity and get more projects done faster. That's RCAT.com. A-R-C-A-T.com. FreshBooks makes it simple to send invoices, post your expenses automatically, track your time for your whole team, buy project, and get organized with financial reports, communication, and notifications. My favorite feature in FreshBooks is the automated invoice reminders. I think sending invoices and getting paid is one of the biggest barriers to our success as entrepreneur architects. Who has the time? But if we don't send out the invoices, we don't get paid, right? FreshBooks makes it easy to send out your invoices and get paid fast online with a click of a button. And when your client doesn't pay you on time, 
FreshBooks will send them a friendly email reminder through a simple system that you control. Sign up for a free 30-day unrestricted trial and get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid faster. Go to entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks and enter Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks. In the last few years, premium outdoor spaces have become a must-have architectural feature. And Infratech outdoor electric heating systems have become the brand of choice among leading architects. Infratech heaters provide energy-efficient ambient warmth that allows homeowners to live outdoors during cooler months. Clients love them because they can enjoy 100 more nights a year outside. Architects love them because of their unparalleled versatility. From heater capacities and colors to mounting options that can either seamlessly disappear or accentuate a space with beautiful decorative coverings. They're also the only comfort heat company to offer smart home integration and hands-free voice-activated control. For over 60 years, Infratech has made their products in the USA at competitive prices. They offer incredible design and live technical support at every stage of a job. A few years ago, I was visiting Sonoma Wine Country in California. It was during the autumn, so it was a bit cool when the sun dropped below the horizon. One evening, we joined a group of friends for dinner at one of the big wineries, and, and we ate outside on the veranda. That amazing Sonoma sun was setting behind the vineyard, so it was getting rather cool that evening, but we were very comfortable. In fact, the temperature was perfect for an outdoor meal during a cool Sonoma evening. I looked up and around to discover why that temperature was so comfortable and found, yes, you guessed it, an Infratech heater integrated with the design of the wood trellis above our table. All these years later, I know it was an Infratech heater because back at the studio, we were planning a large outdoor space for a client and outdoor heating was part of that plan. And we ended up specifying six Infratech heaters for that project. Their amazing customer support team helped us specify the right units and we had a very happy and comfortable client. Infratech is specified at the most prestigious properties around the world. Learn why and sign up for a free consultation at infratech-usa.com forward slash podcast. That's infratech-usa.com slash podcast. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. So, so how do these documents differ from the A101s? Well, the, go ahead, Leonard. I jump in there. Um, these these documents um, work in a more streamlined way. The A101 is a paired set of documents. It uses um, the uh, format of entering infill points on 101, and A201 is a very lengthy terms agreement sheet. And you have to bind those two together. Um, and that comprises a much larger document, right. um, ultimately. Um, and it's cumbersome. And it also requires architects, especially you know, architects at our level, to learn the document. And there's almost too much to learn at times. It would be a lot easier if residential architects like us um, knew 
the documents and then would just offer um, architects the pared down um, appropriate version. And that's what we did. Um, I, I want to just backtrack a little. When I joined the committee, one of the most exciting things for me was going into the archives basement of the AIA National um, and seeing the original um, 101, B101, which is service agreement, and A101, which is the construction agreement, um, there um, from, 19, from 1888. Um, these documents have been around for a long time. And our committee has been along around for that amount of time as well. And we sit for 10 years at a time, um, you know, and it, we're many generations older now. Um, and there's a knowledge and a wisdom that yeah. comes with these documents. And so uh, we're, we're conveying this to um, everyone, you know, who's listening in today, so that there's trust and confidence um, that this wisdom is for their better business um, understanding. Uh, you know, it's it's nice for architects to just concentrate on design, but there there is a back of house that um, really has to do with the infrastructure and the and the logic of contracts and other things. Um, and I think let us take care of uh, how the contracts work for you. Um, you know, edit a little but uh, we, we've got your back. Um, and also for owners um, and for contractors, we, we are trying to um, uh, come up with something that uh, really will stand the test of time. And it has, you know, for 130 some odd years um, because all the parties that are involved in these documents trust and have experienced um, their uh, fair and balanced um, approach. Uh, so um, the, I, I would like to also describe one more thing for um, the uninitiated. The B series are a series of documents that are service agreements between architect and owner. Uh, the A series are a series of agreements between owner and contractor. Uh, the architect is mentioned in the A series as a an authoritative voice or party um, that's parallel to the process, but they're actually not in that document. It's really important that the order, the relationship of the three parties in a traditional um, design bid build um, uh, order um, is understood. Um, and these documents lay that out and organize it uh, correctly. Um, it, you, one could try to draft their own agreements, and we know that about 50% of residential architects have uh, relied on um, letter agreements, um, which is, uh, they're, they're skimpy, but they don't actually, they're, they're not aware of the order and the relationship of these three um, parties um, to, the, to the work. Yeah. Mark, if I may go ahead, Mike. Follow up on that, um, and it has to do with a few of these things we're talking about: the length of the documents, and, and as Leonard's talking about, there's the, the owner architect and owner contract agreements. Contractor agreements are paired together. For me, the biggest thing, the biggest reason to have written the B110, the owner architect agreement for custom residential project, 
has more to do with the owner contractor agreement for a custom residential project. And that is, is that although B101, I found it very useful, the flagship owner architect agreement, I found it very useful in my custom um, residential practice. Um, the thing, you know, I, 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 I'll digress here a second that I think that the length of the contracts scare architects more than they scare owners. And, and I think we sort of project that on the owners and say the owners intimidated by this. But having said that, even I, when I, you know, have the winner B101 owner architect agreement for a custom residential project with a client, when it came time to sign that owner contractor agreement, uh, I just sort of shirked at 50 pages of, of uh, owner contractor agreement, which as Leonard said, is that the A201 general conditions was always paired with, if it's a stipulated sum, it's the A101 owner contract agreement. That's 50 pages. Meanwhile, just like there were shorter owner architect agreements, there were also available shorter owner contract agreements. And there was a, a document, it used to be called the A107, but it's called the A104. And it's the abbreviated form of owner contract agreement. And it has, it has the general conditions uh, incorporated into the one document. So it's not this 50 pages, I think it's like 20, 23 or 24. And, um, and it's, it's, I think for a custom residential project, which is especially in construction, um, it's not as complicated. It doesn't have to be as complicated as a commercial construction project. Um, I, I, that's what sold me on, Hey, let's rewrite Let's write a, uh, an owner architect agreement that links and is coordinated with the shorter owner contractor agreement because that was just it was it was just too much uh even for me and and, and it wasn't just the pages it was sort of there's a lot of formalities in a yeah. con commercial construction project which sort of get glossed over in a uh, residential construction project and often was was push a lot of pushback from from residential contractors to to refuse to sign yes. that contract they would they would all want their own contract, right. which typically ended up being a letter of agreement. And then the owner didn't want to have that argument, so they would sign that contract. And you, as an architect, can only influence as much as you can influence. Now you have a decent owner architect agreement, but you have a terrible owner contractor agreement. And so the fact that now we have a a a one ten that might be a little bit more. Uh, 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 you know, contractors would be happier to to take a look at it. Uh, might be you know really beneficial to the to the architect being able to use the B one ten to connect them. That's right. That's right. So, are there any any unique provisions within the these documents that that our listeners should be aware of? Yes. Um, one of the things that we talked a lot about was that um, in the main B101, um, engineering services are included as part of the fee. Um, and uh, for smaller firms, this is a very hard thing to uh, measure. Um, can you get an engineer on board at a certain price? Um, what is that price? Um, and we um, talked about it and really uh, determine that most residential architects prefer to um, separate that cost and have the owners pay for engineering services on an as need basis, because sometimes it's just not 
um, necessary. And in other times, um, there are circumstances that are uncovered that need more engineering services. So from a, uh, a purely logical point of view in terms of fees, um, those that aspect is taken out of the contract, um, put as a, a an added expense. And so we can uh, more precisely determine uh, fees and, and uh, control outcome. I'll, I'll add to that, that, um, you know, the, one of the challenges of writing a document is that, is that more so in residential than in commercial folks practice in different ways. And, you know, for example, we, we do layout, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, of course, but we, we don't hire an MEP engineer and the owner doesn't. It's, it's really mostly done design build in, right. in this market, even on the nicest homes. But a structural engineer, we, we fold that, the structural engineers are consultant. And other folks will you know, have the owner hire the structural engineer. Some people want an MEP engineer and it's a little less uh, consistently practiced as it is in the commercial world. And so by just making that as a as a supplemental service, which means that in the table in Article Four, before you sign the contract, you agree who's going to who's going to provide it. It it pulls it out of uh, where it used to just be a line in the beginning of the architect services article in B one hundred and one Article Three. It says you know the architect will provide the usual uh, and customary structural, mechanical, electrical, and plumbing engineering uh, services, and that was really not. It certainly wasn't how I practiced. And so I would just always strike MEP and then I'd have to put somewhere else. I'd explain exactly what we were doing relative to MEP and how it was designed bills. So by just pulling that out and putting it in the uh, supplemental services table, it, it'll, it allows for some flexibility with, with the way different people practice. The other thing we took out uh, and, and put on the side um, for supplemental is uh, rebidding because um, you know, we recognize that, especially in residential, you have um, more uninitiated clients. Um, uh, yeah. And um, they're learning a lot of things along the way. They're learning to read drawings. They're learning uh, about the process for the very first time. And um, sometimes there could be uh, budgetary things that they don't quite understand. And so we wanted to make sure that um, once a project went to bid and all the work was put in and you had, you know, a good credible list of bidders um, and the prices came back, a rebidding exercise, if it was contemplated by an owner, uh, would be a service that was recognized in compensation. And so, uh, because you, you can't just have a kind of endless bidding process. Uh, there, there are finite limits. There, there are limits to your capacity to absorb that uh, time. Uh, and so that, that's, that's also something uh, that's typical of residential. Yeah. And that happens often. And, and so many architects will just eat that cost. They'll just, they don't want to upset the client, right? That, the, that expectation was not managed properly. And so that situation occurs, they just deal with it. And then and there goes their fee. And so to have this in their contract, it the managed the expectation is managed because the con the owner has now read that contract, understands that that's what's going to happen if they rebid the project, and you have something to go back to as an architect and say, hey, we ha we're happy to rebid that, but here's the contract. This is how this process is going to work. 
you know, we often talk about um, distributing the risk uh, to the party that's best able to manage that risk or uh, absorb the risk. And so all parties um, enter into a relationship and then it's just a matter of allocating fairly um, and in a balanced fashion, uh, cost, time, and all the things that happen. And I think in particular in residential, um, there's there are very strong relationships with clients. And um, so it's very hard to go back and say, hey, you know, that's extra time. Um, you, you just try to absorb it, as you said, Mark, and, um, you know, do the best you can. Um, but the, that affects the bottom line, and it can be catastrophic if someone takes advantage um, in the wrong way. Yeah. And that, that, for me, that's one of the biggest reasons. Obviously, the reduced, you know, the protection that a contract provides an architect with risk. But the, the, the ability for an architect to be able to manage expectations throughout the project, right, throughout the, the process of creating architecture and during construction, um, when those situations occur, having a contract allows you to let that inexperienced client understand what that process is going to be like and then be able to have a document that to reference when those situations may occur to be able to go back and reference that document and everybody is on the same page because everybody read that document. I'm glad you mentioned that, Mark, because um, very often, um, you know, we think of contracts as uh, some kind of place to deal with disputes. But in right. fact, uh, one, with the name residential, it gives both parties the confidence that this is the right document for the job. Very important. And two, it acts as a manual a guide to how the process will go, what is the um, typical architectural standard for phases of service, how those phases of service uh, take place, what each party can expect um, of each other. Um, and uh, even for, you know, um, more uh, uh, uninitiated architects, it can right. be a really good um, guideline. Okay, okay. now I'm supposed to do this. Now I'm supposed to do this. This is what uh, the profession does. Um, and, and so it, it has a wonderful instructional or educational quality to it. Uh, and that should never be underestimated because ultimately these documents are references. Um, you know, the, the idea of actually um, disputing them, um, that's a last resort. Um, they're, they're just wonderful guides of how to do practice well. Um, and, um, you know, um, Michael spoke about this earlier that um, clients are not uh, surprised or owners are not surprised by the length of documents because they sign documents like this for their mortgages and for other loans. And when they buy a property, um, this is sort of standard. Um, so um, of course we should have a good guide for how uh, the service of architecture is delivered. Yeah, go yeah, ahead, they, Michael. They, uh, that is one of the phrases we, uh, one of the phrases we use all the time is that it is really a roadmap for the project. And it certainly can tell the owner what to expect, but but um, our experience is um, it's it's just as much for the architect. Um, you know, just one of the classic ones is that is that at the end of schematic design and design development, um, and actually before schematic design begins, you're supposed to assess the owner's budget as an architect, 
And then at the end of SD, you say, I think it's going to cost this. And that's the, that's the uh, owner's opportunity to object or, you know, and talk about what well, we need to rework things. And, and uh, boy, you skip the, uh, you skip giving an estimate after schematic design and go right on through design development. And then the owner freaks out when, um, even after CDs or whenever it occurs that the owner realizes what this is really going to cost. It's not pretty. And you can yeah. lose a lot of services that you time and you put into it. And, uh, and the other one is, just, well, what happens when it, another good example is, well, what happens when this project comes in way over budget? You know, you, you go to article six and we kept that in this document. There's a whole process about cooperating um, you know, who's responsible for what the architect rightly so has some responsibility for, for blowing the budget. Um, but, um, you know, if there's a process you can follow this, so this thing, these documents really are, um, you know, as Leonard said, an educational tool and a, and a roadmap. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're not only risk management documents, they're project management documents. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Very and, interesting. Um, the other, um, thing that I think is built into these documents from the very beginning, the origins in 1888, um, is that they anticipate a linear process. You um, design at a schematic level, and then you pass through uh, this milestone with everyone's approval, and you begin uh, detailing. Um, and you close the door uh, to returning to the diagrammatic level. That, that story has been uh, told. Everybody's turned over every stone and considered every option. And um, it's an important thing because if an architect were to go to CDs, um, build up the CD drawing set, and then have the owner say, well, you know, I, I'd actually rather have my house look like a bridge now. Uh, what do we do? Uh, that, um, that's hard to swallow. So uh, these documents help everyone understand uh, a linear process um, that makes sense and that's business-wise. Yeah. They, yeah, they're good for both both parties. I mean, they're protective of both. But um, one of the things I point to a lot is uh, the amount of uh, you know, additional services which we were rightly entitled to collect that we have been able to collect because we can point to things in the uh, document, for example, surveyor made a big error and we had to modify the whole building. Well, you know, the document says we're architect is entitled to rely on the, on the uh, owner's consultants um, information. Um, the one I, I talk about when we sign the document is, okay, look, I likely will not ever have to charge you additional services, but this is the one you need to watch out for. And it's that first one that says that, um, you know, when an owner changes previously approved instructions upon which you rely, you know, that's additional services. And, and so you, soon as they say, you know, we've, we're into DD and something they want to do conflicts with what they approved in SD, I just say, look, you know, this is, this is, uh, we have to charge you hourly services uh, to get back on track. And um, there has, there have been, a lot of additional, when we presented it on this before, I give a ton of examples of this. Just looking back in my practice, um, there are a lot of examples of uh, where it was just 
clear as day, this is additional services, so I could ask for it. Whereas if you have a lesser document that doesn't cover all the eventualities, you know, you reasonable people would probably agree that, you know, the architect ought to be paid extra for that. That, that wasn't something that, you know, they could have anticipated, but it's a whole lot easier when you don't have to appeal to their reasonableness. And you can just say, look, it says right here, um, you know, the, the when the contractor uh, submits, you know, four submittals for the same thing, at some point I can, I can start uh, charging additional services. And, and, you know, we're all, we're not perfect either. And I find that there's this sort of gray area in architectural practice, this sort of fuzzy um, situation where sometimes you feel like you didn't, you know, like maybe you didn't, you missed some, we, we as architects, maybe we missed some things. And so it kind of, it can make you cower a little bit from asking for additional services because they can say, well, well, you cost me this because you, you forgot to include uh, you know, such and such in the, in the design. And so the more you, sh you follow this roadmap and structure things, and you think like a business person about all the, uh, about all of these details and, and, and what they mean, you know, the, the greater confidence you'll, you'll have. Um, one is that mindset will have you doing things more properly, but uh, number two, you know, when it's in your contract, you, you know, you can, you can make the claim and um, you know, we don't, we don't make a lot of profit margin in, uh, in this business in general. And uh, you know, we need all the help we can get. And, and when we, we provide something that's, that wasn't what was contemplated, we should be compensated for it. Yeah. And this yeah. document help you do that. Right. And so they're business management documents as well. That's right. Yeah. And, right. and so it, it like that. <laughs> it, it's and that's a big piece, right? That's a big piece because architects do struggle financially, and it's often because they they don't have the legal backing to be able to have the confidence to go back to a client and say, "Hey, you need to pay us for that," right? Every other service provider, doctors, lawyers, accountants have no problem with that, <laughs> but architects often, you know, because of the type of people that who become architects have that that, that um, fear of going back to a client and asking for that additional uh, service. But when it's in a contract, it's very easy to go back and say, look, this is, it, it's right here. This is, we're gonna read this together. It's clear that, that, we, you know, that we are owed that money. And so we can be more profitable architects, which makes us better architects, right? Because now we have more money to be able to become better architects, have more time to, to spend on, on designing better architecture. That's right. It's right. also if you, not if you look at Article Four in that um, you, you can go online at, and there are uh, there are sample documents you can view and you can see the text of these documents we're talking about um, at the AIA contract documents website. And um, but if you look in Article Four, it talks about all the potential additional services. And uh, and if you start looking at those and thinking, you know, how much of of, of this do I give away on yeah, the average project? Right. And here, here it says, use this document here. It says, this is entitles you to the extra compensation. You can, you can help yourself a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I think confidence in these documents is really important. The, yeah. the, the very idea that an architect would cower over some wording um, doesn't speak well of the relationship between the client and the um, architect. An architect, a, a client would like architects to be bold and do good design and not uh, be fearful in their design process. And so it's just no way to be 
when you have this kind of um, upstairs downstairs relationship um, from the get go um, that interferes with your ability to be creative and 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 do what you do best, which is the art of architecture. Yeah, we'll have um, a link on the show notes to access the the uh, to go take a look at the samples that are available. It's uh, aiacontracts.org is the website. Uh, we'll have that link on the show notes. Before we wrap up, Leonard and Michael, I wanted to ask you, uh, what is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Leonard, maybe you can start us off with that. Um, I, I think that uh, keeping pace with um, technology and, and how um, deliverables are uh, generated these days. So, you know, when I started, we were hand drawing. Then we went to computers um, and um, there are so many generations of uh, new delivery methods. So that's really important. Um, I, I think that um, getting out in the world and networking with people and really understanding what your clients are thinking about and what they like and what they're looking for um, makes you a better architect. Because if, if you just stick to your own world and um, think in a bubble, uh, you may not appreciate the sophistication um, and ideas that they bring to the table. And, and I think that's really important. So speaking many languages, uh, speaking the language of, let's say, a surgeon who needs a surgical suite or uh, someone running a big company that needs specialized office space and so on, knowing their language will help immensely in, in uh, your practice um, uh, perception. What about you, Michael? Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. There, there's, it would be a long list, you know, it's tough when you ask for one thing, but, yeah. um, and you might not be surprised when, I guess it goes back to, what's the saying that when you're a, a carpenter or a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Yeah, exactly. Uh, of course, I'm immersed in, in this and uh, in contracts and what they've uh, done and how they've made our firm financially successful. Um, and, you know, so I really focus on sort of the business management side of this. And uh, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's contracts are one tool in your quiver towards your operation, you know, successful operations and business management. But I, I just think that um, man, partly because I think it's under, they're underappreciated, but if you get a hold of your contracts and, and, and use ones that people have thought about, uh, uh, thoroughly through all the things that you might face in your in your practice, I, I think it's a uh, it's a huge leg up on uh, getting to be a successful firm. His name is Michael Bell and Leonard Katie Bell Architecture is Michael's firm. Leonard Katie Architecture and Design is Leonard's firm. You can learn more about AIA contract documents at aiacontracts.org. Again, we'll have a link to that on the show notes. Michael and Leonard, thank you very much, not only for coming by here today and sharing your knowledge about uh, AIA contract documents, but all your service to the profession. You've, you've absolutely have dedicated yourself to making the profession better through these contract documents, uh, which is important. You know, that, that's, those are the type of things that we need to strengthen our profession, right? That, to help our profession thrive. Uh, from a from a uh, not only a practice but from a financial point of view, and uh, I appreciate your dedication and your service to the profession. Thank you, Mark. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Mark. 
Thank you both. Thanks for coming by and, and sharing your knowledge at Entree Architect Podcast. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. That's how Entree Architect will grow to serve thousands more architects just like you. Thank you to our sponsors, RCAT, FreshBooks, and InfraTech Comfort Heaters for their support of this episode. Links to our sponsors and all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And check out Entree Architect Academy membership. Ready to edit business resources, live monthly business training for architects, a supportive architect community, and simple systems. Our new business system program developed for small firm entrepreneur architects, just like you. It's all waiting for you right now at Entree Architect Academy membership, including AIA continuing education learning units. Come join me and hundreds of your entrepreneur architect peers. Visit entrearchitect.com slash join to enroll today. Thank you for listening. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that, (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Cool.
calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.